Hi, my name is Ella Warner. I will be discussing the development in studies and knowledge of the human brain and thought in the 19th century. There are deep connections between the study of the human brain and sexism throughout American society. If an object is defined as, quote, a person or thing to which a specified action or feeling is directed, end quote, can we define imagination as an object? Imagination is, quote, the faculty or action of forming new ideas, images, or concepts of external objects not present to the senses, end quote. In the 19th century, imagination was most definitely different than that of the current time. Maybe people dreamed that their crops would grow taller, that there would be a world without slavery, or maybe they dreamed of a world where they could vote, a world where men were no longer overpowering every aspect of life. The difference between imagination today and imagination in the 19th century may be minor in terms of the process that thoughts occur, but the impact that imagination had on society, and more specifically on science in the past century, is tremendous. Belief systems were an integral part of past society, with imagination being the foundation. The integration of faith and societal norms into scientific studies led to faith being accepted as fact rather than suspicion. Without the technological resources of today, scientists were dependent on imagination as the core influencer of scientific knowledge. On a more general level, humans are constantly relying on the ability to dream and create in order to advance the cause of human progress. The 19th century knowledge of the brain was not only based on science, but also on societal norms and institutionalized standards. If imagination played into the understanding of the brain, then Scottish philosopher David Hume and his studies are greatly important to discuss. Hume was one of the original people to document his questions on the parts of our brains that are responsible for the, quote, justification of beliefs, and more generally, what, quote, cognitive faculties are responsible for these beliefs and their creation. Hume speculated the ethical question of why we are morally obligated to treat other people justly and asked why we naturally sympathize with people whose interests suffer due to injustice. Hume called his work the science of man. It is not my place to call him a hypocrite, but within his work there is visible injustice. I would instead label him as a product of his time. Hume studied the faculties of imagination and how, quote, the social arrangements that humans form collectively are a product of imagination. He calls his study of injustice the study of man, not the study of humans. The moderate sexism throughout neurological studies from the 19th century is more prominent to a person who is proximate to specific oppression. His discoveries surrounding imagination and specifically what can be explained by imagination is astounding. Hume believed that, quote, imagination explains why we tend to sympathize or share the feelings of other people and why we project some of our feelings onto objects in the world around us. He also believed that imagination explains numerous fictions that we believe. Features of the imagination explain why we need to form governments and shape the laws that we adopt, including those that govern the distribution of property and those that govern the passage of national authority. Hume knew that, quote, men are mightily governed by imagination and was able to identify how the brain establishes human connections 
but through these findings, he was still unable to comprehend the sexism throughout the world and the impact imagination had on this specific oppression. You then must wonder, how does thought evolve and change? Well, the short answer is that it doesn't. Thought evolves based on societal knowledge and personal experience. If Hume was the only person with this knowledge, he was the primary influence on how people perceived imagination throughout the world. William James, a widely read American philosopher, is responsible for the popularization of psychology in the United States. James was the first educator to offer psychology courses in the United States and famous for his theories on pragmatism as well as his diagnoses that led to the institutionalization of women. James was intent on assessing the truth of theories and beliefs, yet could not see the truths within his detrimental approach surrounding the treatment of women. These discoveries contradict one another. If James was committed to being practical, where was the practicality in gender influencing superiority? According to James, quote, the value of an idea is independent upon its usefulness in the practical world rather than its absolute truth, end quote. You might wonder, what is the relationship between practicality and the truth that James systematically ignored? According to research conducted by Aude Favel, who has made it her life's work to study gender, women have consistently been known as the quote-unquote weaker sex. Not only is this a gender problem, but it is also a problem of integrity and how that connects to the sexes. A British case that went on from 1860 to 1900 is one of many that emphasizes the belief in the inferiority of the female brain. In this case, psychiatry, quote, sometimes described as a particularly sexist science, end quote, is responsible for portraying women as hysterical when choosing love over the demands of men. Psychiatry as a practice in the early to late 19th century is to blame for the immense increase of women in mental institutions, as it was a practice under the complete and total control of men. The limitations on diversity of thought in the 19th century were controlled by societal norms, but what was not recognized is how differently men and women use their brains. Because of deeply internalized societal standards, women were perceived as inferior to men, and with this came the idea that not only were they less capable, but their brains were physically smaller. The difference in the way that men and women think was an excuse for the suppression of women on the basis of sex and emotional outrage. The idea that women were overly emotional evolved into women being seen as hysterical. Women were lobotomized and put through electroshock therapy in order to reduce their overly emotional behavior. Gender superiority allowed for women to become victims of the understudied, and they have essentially stayed that way throughout time. It is impossible to know the full impact of gender superiority on the brain and imagination, but it is possible that women are still being diagnosed improperly. Male psychologists subconsciously believing that women are overly emotional may impact diagnoses. The sexist science is one that exists all throughout the world, and I am greatly curious about how the Victorian psychological ideologies have evolved throughout time. We as humans may never know how thought evolves throughout time, and we may never know the full capacity of our brains, but we can control how women are perceived in the future. Maybe we can imagine a world where true equality exists, 
a world where emotion and imagination are valued the same way that humans should be. I will end this podcast with an excerpt from Eve Ensler, a feminist and activist who will speak to the importance of emotion throughout the world and society in the coming years. It's called I'm an Emotional Creature, and it happened because I met a girl in Watts, LA. I was asking girls if they liked being a good girl, and all the girls were like, no, I hate it, I can't stand it, it's all bad, my brothers get everything, and this girl just sat up and went, I love being a girl, I'm an emotional creature. This is for her. I love being a girl. I can feel what you're feeling as you're feeling inside the feeling before. I am an emotional creature. Things do not come to me as intellectual theories or hard-pressed ideas. They pulse through my organs and legs and burn up my ears. Oh, I know when your girlfriend's really pissed off, even though she appears to give you what you want. I know when a storm is coming, I can feel the invisible stirrings in the air. I can tell you we won't call back. It's a vibe I share. I am an emotional creature. I love that I do not take things lightly. Everything is intense to me. The way I walk in the street, the way my mama wakes me up, the way it's unbearable when I lose, the way I hear bad news. I am an emotional creature. I am connected to everything and everyone. I was born like that. Don't you say all negative that it's only, only a teenage thing or it's only because I'm a girl. These feelings make me better. They make me present. They make me ready. They make me strong. I am an emotional creature. There's a particular way of knowing. It's like the older women somehow forgot. I rejoice that it's still in my body. Oh, I know when the coconut's about to fall. I know we have pushed the earth too far. I know my father isn't coming back and that no one's prepared for the fire. I know that lipstick means more than show and boys are super insecure and so-called terrorists are made, not born. I know that one kiss could take away all my decision-making ability. And you know what? Sometimes it should. This is not extreme. It's a girl thing what we would all be if the big door inside us flew open. Don't tell me not to cry, to calm it down, not to be so extreme, to be reasonable. I am an emotional creature. It's how the earth got made, how the wind continues to pollinate. You don't tell the Atlantic Ocean to behave. I am an emotional creature. Why would you want to shut me down or turn me off? I am your remaining memory. I can take you back. Nothing's been diluted. Nothing's leaked out. I love, hear me, I love that I can feel the feelings inside you. Even if they stop my life. Even if they break my heart. Even if they take me off track, they make me responsible. I am an emotional, I am an emotional, incondotional, devotional creature. And I love, hear me, 